Viktor Frankl, the renowned Austrian psychotherapist, psychiatrist, also a survivor of the Holocaust, wrote a book entitled Man's Search for Meaning. He was hailed as the father of a school of thought in psychiatry known as logotherapy. And one of the principles of his thought was that if you can tell a person why he is here or she is here and why he or she is suffering difficulty, that person will find a way to overcome. Have you ever stopped to wonder why you're here? Have you ever been able to actually pinpoint the reason that you are drawing air today? Well, the Bible is very clear. It's something that applies to each of us. In the book of Isaiah, the 43rd chapter, in the 7th verse, we hear the Word of God. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. So, the reason we're here is to glorify the Lord. That's a rather nebulous concept for most of us. We want to know, what does that look like? Please help us, Lord, to understand what that means because it's all important. We know because that's the reason for which we were born in the first place and we were born again if we know Christ in the second place to glorify you. Let's look at the question and seek an answer in the explanation of the glory of God. The word which is translated glory in the Old Testament is a word which means to be heavy. The idea is a heavy weight. The heavy weight of God. When we stop and think, why would God's Spirit choose that word to describe the glory of God? It becomes quickly clear. It's because God is the one who is the most solid being in the universe because He created this universe. He is the sovereign of the universe and therefore He is heavy as it were. Perhaps you've wondered like I have if there are any other words we could use to help us grasp more fully the glory of God. How do we glorify the Lord? The word which comes to me immediately when I ask that question is the word honor. We have been created to honor the Lord. A word that comes quickly behind it is the word praise. We have been created to praise the Lord, to worship the Lord. Also, the word boast comes into my consciousness. And this is right out of Scripture. For instance, in Jeremiah chapter 9, beginning with verse 23, this is God's voice speaking to the people of Judah through the prophet Jeremiah. But the Spirit of God speaking to us also. Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. Let not a mighty man boast of his might. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. The authorized version of the Bible puts it this way, and rightly so, because the word boast is actually the word glory in or glorify. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not a rich man boast in his riches or the mighty man in his strength. 
So when we glorify the Lord, we boast about the Lord. If we brag about anyone, we brag about the Lord. Because He is the only one in the universe who deserves that kind of attention. I cannot help but believe this is what was experienced by that group of shepherds who were watching their flocks by night outside the city of Jerusalem under that starlit sky. It was a beautiful evening undoubtedly. And all of a sudden they were startled when an angel showed up and the glory of the Lord, the Bible says, shone around them and they were terribly frightened. So the glory of the Lord in Scripture is often accompanied by physical phenomena, including light. After all, God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. So God is light. And His light is used to demonstrate His glory as well. Let's now address the issue of the extent of the glory of God, having looked at the explanation of the glory of God. Let's look at the geographical extent of the glory of God. In Numbers 14.21, the Bible says, The glory of the Lord will extend to all the earth, all the world. And I might add, it does not limit itself to this globe. It includes also the entire universe. There's nowhere in the universe, if we were able to travel there, that we would not witness the glory of God in the creation. Because, as David writes in Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. You probably remember in the year that Uzziah died, the great king of Judah who had reigned so well for over 50 years. One of his subjects, a man named Isaiah, who was even more so a subject of the Lord God, went to the temple to worship. He turned to God in that time of great loss, as did the whole nation of Judah. And as he went there, all of a sudden, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the train of the Lord filled the temple and overflowed the temple. And then he heard these angelic beings singing antiphonally, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. His whole glory fills the earth. The glory of the Lord is seen everywhere in the universe, in the created order, and even beyond. The extent of the glory of God is also personal in our lives in terms of its presence and its importance. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's comprehensive, isn't it? There's not anything that I engage in that I'm not to glorify God in. That will eliminate a lot of things for us, obviously. But it's possible in the things that we consider mundane, routine, things that are really not that spiritual, to think we really can't glorify God in those things. But please understand, Martin Luther, the great reformer, understood it. He said, do everything for the glory of God. If you are someone who milks cows, he said, milk cows to the glory of God. He said to his barber, when you cut my hair, someone else's hair, cut hair to the glory of God. It did not matter what a person's state was in Luther's mind, that person had the possibility of glorifying God. May I say, it's true today just as sure as it was in the 16th century with Martin Luther. 
Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. The next part of this teaching is the part that we're going to spend more time on than the other three parts. And it has to do with the example of the glory of God. I mentioned already, I need some sort of reference point, and I would imagine you do too. The ideas of glorifying God, worshiping God, boasting in God, we know what they are, but they're not exactly the most concrete ideas. But we look to no other than Jesus Christ for the example of the glory of God. In John 17, 4, Jesus, the evening before he knew that he was going to be crucified for you and for me, he was praying to his Father, pouring his heart out to the Father, remembering that Jesus had been with the Father before he became a human being. He was there in his pre-incarnate state. He was God then, just as surely as he was God In the flesh, as the Scripture tells us, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus is praying to His Father that evening. And He says, Father, I have glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work which You have given Me to do. Jesus had finished all the work with the exception of his death on the cross. And by the way, this phrase I just mentioned from John 17, 4, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. The word translated, one word, having accomplished, is the word which Jesus utters from the cross near the end of his time of paying the price for our sin. And he punctuates the payment of that sin with this one word, tetelestai, he said. Translated in our Bibles, it is finished. I have paid in full. I have finished, Father. But is there any contradiction in what he says the night before and what he says the next afternoon on the cross when he says it is finished? Is he saying the same thing two different ways? No, he's saying two different things. He was saying, you gave me work to do, Father during this intervening period between the beginning of my public work for you and the ending of that public work when I died on the cross for the sins of the world. Lord, I've finished it. I did it the way you wanted me to do it. And might I add, when Jesus worked in the carpenter's shop alongside his adoptive father, Joseph, he did what he did to the glory of God. This is not in the Bible, but it's reported to have been true by people who knew Jesus before they knew he was God in the human flesh. There was the suggestion that over his carpenter's shop, there were these words, my yokes fit well. What Jesus did as a carpenter, you can be sure, was excellent. He did his work to the glory of God showing us that we also, regardless of where we find ourselves in life, we can do likewise. And I'm going to get to that in more detail a bit later. The example of the glory of God is seen in Jesus in that Jesus depended on the Father for everything. Please turn to the book of John, chapter 5. Verse 19. 
Jesus says in John 5.19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. And then look at verse 30, the first part of it. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. Well, I thought Jesus is God. I thought Jesus was God during the time of his inhabiting human flesh. Well, let me say, he was God before he came to earth. He was God throughout the entirety of his stay on earth in human flesh. He still is God. And one more additional truth. Jesus has a body now. And guess what it is? It's a human body. It's called a spiritual body in the book of 1 Corinthians 15. But I imagine that Jesus Christ wears human flesh with as much satisfaction as anything else He does now. Because it's the sign that He identified fully with us and He took our sin upon Himself. It shows us the love He has. The writer of Hebrews says about Jesus that He's the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Jesus endured the cross in His humanity, but it was also in His deity. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself in His ministry as He discipled particularly His apostles to take the ball and move it forward in the spread of the gospel. But also... Jesus was in, God was in Jesus when He died on the cross for our sin. Mystery of mysteries, but praise God that He was. In the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, we've read it together. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. With the possibility of being redundant here, let me just go and say, Jesus, in counsel with God the Father and God the Spirit, prior to Jesus coming into this world, agreed that when He came, He would maintain His deity. He could not separate Himself from that. But He would submit Himself to the Father. He would depend upon Jesus, would depend upon the Father for everything. He says it, doesn't He? In John 5:19. In 5.30, and then the Scripture goes on to say in Philippians 2, being found in appearance as a man and taking the form of a servant. Let me stop there just a moment. The word translated servant in the New International Version is a poor translation of the word. It's too mild. It's not a strong enough translation. The word literally is the word for slave. He took on the form of a slave. Jesus became a slave to His Father in the sense that whatever the Father told Him to do, He did. Whatever the Father gave Him to say, He said. Jesus depended on the Father for everything. And in so doing, He set the perfect example for us. We get understanding of what it means to glorify God by looking at Christ in His Attitude of submission. In 1 Corinthians 11.3, the writer says that God is the head of Christ. God the Father 
is the head of Jesus Christ. Jesus submitted to the Father. He depended upon Him. And His submission, His dependence may be seen in His commitment to do the will of God. Turn back to the fourth chapter of John for a moment. And let's take a look at verses 32 through 34. The background of this is one that's familiar to most of you. Jesus and his apostles had been traveling. They were hungry and tired. They found themselves in Samaria where most self-respecting Jews did not travel. But the Bible tells us in John chapter 4, Jesus had to go through Samaria. There was an appointment that God had for him there so that God would use Jesus to glorify him as Jesus carried out the work that God had given him to do. And he met this woman, a Samaritan woman. And you know the rest of the story. They talked back and forth. Jesus kept her on point, bringing her back to her need for a Savior. And then he said, I'm the Savior. I'm the living water. If you drink of me, you will never have to drink again. And about the time that her life was changed irrevocably, when she met Christ and realized who He was, and she trusted Christ, she was born from above, and she's leaving the scene of Jesus and going as she leaves. She is going into town to tell the townspeople about the Messiah whom she has found. And the disciples show up. They've been sent into town to get food. They bring food. They're hungry. They bring it to Jesus. He had indicated his hunger earlier. And we pick up on the action there in verse 32. Look at it. But Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus must have overheard them because he said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Remember, Jesus depended on the Father for everything. He got his marching orders from above. Often we hear Jesus saying, truly, truly. In fact, we're going to encounter this again probably as this time of examining what it means to glorify the Lord. And the words truly, truly translate the words amen, amen, transliterated into English, amen, amen. When we say amen to something... What are we saying? I agree. I confirm. I affirm. So what was Jesus saying when he was saying, Amen, Amen, truly, truly, and then following it with some declaration? He's saying, I've heard this from the Father. I'm amening you, Father. I agree with you. And now I'm going to carry that out in my life and pass it on to those within hearing of my voice. And we too benefit from that. So Jesus came to do the will of the Father. Now go to John 6, 38 for further confirmation of that principle. So when we submit to the Lord, we're depending on the Lord. When we depend on the Lord, we are doing the will of the Lord. Are you beginning to get a picture of what it means to glorify the Lord? We're like Christ in our dependence upon God. Okay, 638. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus depended on the Father for everything. And if we are going to glorify the Father, that will become our way of living. Here's the second thing, and it's like the flip side of the first thing. 
is true of the example of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus denied himself. In Philippians chapter 2, the scripture says, Jesus made himself nothing. That's amazing, isn't it? The word literally means he emptied himself. He emptied himself of his divine rights. He did not empty himself of his deity, but of his divine rights to exercise his divine rights without answering to anyone. But he had chosen in concert with the Father to humble himself before the Father and make himself nothing. He humbled himself, this passage goes on to say, he humbled himself. And even to the point of obedience, obedience on a cross, he died. This was the humility of Jesus, his humbling, his denying himself. Jesus' self-denial is seen in his passion. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, that Jesus in his agony as he was anticipating dying for our sins and all that would entail for him to be God-forsaken, to suffer not simply the horrible physical rigors of crucifixion, but also the even more horrible spiritual dimensions of crucifixion. Because he was being crucified on a tree, it was an expression from God's sovereign will that he become the place where God's wrath was poured out upon him. Can you imagine the wrath of God for one person being poured out on one other person? Multiply that by hundreds of millions, if not billions of people. All at once. And Jesus, Luke tells us, remember he was a medical doctor, he said... He sweat what looked like drops of blood from his pores. The agony, the stress of that moment was incredible. And then what did he say to the Father? Not my will, but your will be done. Do you think Jesus denied himself when he went to the cross? He said an example for us that we too should. Later, after he had gotten off his knees and went out to reunite with his inner core of friends, his apostles, there was a commotion coming into the garden. There was a garrison of officers and soldiers coming from the temple. They were under the direction of the chief priest. The chief priest's slave, Malchus, was in that group. And Peter, seeing them, all coming, he decided to do what Peter would have been expected to do by us. He pulled out his sword and he took a swipe at the head of Malchus. Malchus was nimble on his feet, but not nimble enough to avoid the sword completely. It hit his ear and cut his ear off. Jesus scolded Peter and the rest of the apostles. He said, put your knife back in your belt. Don't you know if I so chose... I could call down over 12 legions of angels. I could do that. But I'm denying myself that privilege to be protected because I'm doing the will of Him who sent me. I'm going to accomplish fully the work that the Father has given 
to me to do. I'm depending on the Father. I'm trusting the Father that He knows what's best for me. I'm going to trust Him through this immense trial. Now let's consider how we can experience the glory of God in our lives. We know, number one, what do we have to do? Depend on the Lord, right? Number two, what do we have to do? In order to do that, we've got to deny ourselves. That's the two things we have to do. But here's what makes it possible. In Colossians 1.27, the Scripture says this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Sometimes I feel almost desperate, almost hopeless, thinking, Lord, am I ever going to get this? Do you ever feel that way? I'm being real candid with you. I know there have been times the Lord has used me to glorify Him. I remember those times. But sometimes I feel like I'm losing a grip on it. Do you ever have that experience? Well, it's not about you and me. It is, in a sense, because we are the dwelling place of Christ. The Bible says, if we belong to Christ... The Spirit of Christ is in us. Obviously, Jesus doesn't fit His body inside of our body, but His Spirit comes and indwells us. And it's His life in us that makes it possible for us to glorify Him. After all, what was His MO? He glorified the Father in everything which He did. And where does He now live if we know Him? He lives in us. Jesus says in the book of John 15, I am the true vine. You are the branches. If you abide in me, you will be a person who bears much fruit. And then he adds this very important statement. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You get the picture? It's a clear picture. It's not a hard picture to understand. A child can understand it. A vine with branches in it. What is the purpose of a branch? To bear fruit. Where does the life come for the fruit bearing? It comes from the vine. Who is the vine in our lives? Jesus is the vine. Are we connected to Him? We are if we know Him. We are in Him. And what must we do? We must stay in Him. We must abide in Him. We must depend upon Him. We must deny our own will in order for Him to live His life through us. And when that happens... God is glorified as we depend upon Him. It's not rocket science, but it's critically important. If you want your life, if I want my life to bring glory to God, I have to remember Christ in me is the hope of there being any glory. It's not all the stuff I've got in my head. I've got a lot of stuff about God in the Bible and stuff in my head. That can be useful if I'm abiding in Christ. I can know all the answers to every question that mankind faces. And it can be biblical answers. But if I'm not abiding in Christ, it's just so much verbiage. It's when I'm abiding in Jesus that Jesus uses me to bring glory to God because it's He who is working through me. But I have to follow His example. He says, I have left you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. He lives in us, and He gives us the possibility of being empowered by Him to live through us. Colossians chapter 3, verse 4 makes this astonishing statement. Christ is your life. After all, He is the resurrection and the life. He is the life. Jesus came that we might have life 
We who know Jesus have eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. The life of Christ is in us. And we can follow His example, provided we submit ourselves, therefore, to Him. And we do what He calls disciples in every era do. What do they do? He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him, what? Deny himself or deny herself. Take up his or her cross, how frequently? Daily. And follow me. And the idea of following the Lord Jesus is not an on-again, off-again deal. It's not a casual deal. It's you follow him. Keep on following me. Keep on following me. When we deviate from the path, which we are all apt to do, we don't stay in a ditch that we get ourselves in. We get back up and trust the Lord and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I took matters into my own hands again. I'm confessing that to you, Lord, and I want to go forward. The Bible talks about the fact in the book of Philippians chapter 1, Paul's praying a prayer for the Philippians whom he dearly loved. He said, this is my prayer, that you may be filled, listen carefully, with the fruit of righteousness through Jesus Christ to the glory of God. Glory and praise of God. So there we have it. It's the same idea of a body through Jesus Christ. What? Fruit comes through Jesus Christ. I depend on Jesus like He depends on the Father. I deny myself as He tells me to deny myself. I link up with Him. I trust Him. And what happens? He produces the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And then He produces people who smell the fragrance of Christ in you and in me. And they come to know Jesus. This is awesome to think about the life He's given us. Is it a purposeful life? Is it a meaningful life? By all means, it is. The other thing that we need to consider here as we follow the example of Christ, the purpose of God, if you'll go ahead and put that up, please, that we should depend on Him and that God be given credit for our greatness. Now, you might think when you listen to me teach that I'm suggesting to you that you're just some worm squirming around on the surface of the earth and you shouldn't even try. Just trust God. Don't try. Well, the Bible is real clear that we are people created in the image of God to reflect the image of God. We are people that God wants to be excellent in every phase of our lives. Have you read the Bible lately? To be excellent in your home, to be excellent in your work. The Bible talks about in the book of Proverbs 22:29, do you see a person skilled in his work? That person will not stand before obscure people. That person will stand before kings. Why would God give me a gift or a skill and I not develop it for his glory? Some of you here today have talents. You know you have a talent. You may have a spiritual gift. If you're a Christian, you do. And you've really sought to apply it, but you feel like I'm going nowhere with it. Is that the right way to think? 
I don't think so. It's to say, Lord, this is your talent. You've given it to me. This is your gift. You've given it to me. And what you want me to do is to develop it for your glory, not for my own glory. And this is what we typically do. We strive, we strive, we strive with the wrong intention. We want to make a name for ourselves, just like in Genesis 11. You remember the story when the people were moving out and they decided they were going to build a city. They built this magnificent city. They said, let's build a tower to the heaven. And let's not go on and do what God's told us to do because He's told us to spread out over all the earth. Let's stay here. This is awesome. We can admire our handiwork. And then they said, and they tipped their hand here, We can make a name for ourselves. This is a problem. It's a big problem. It's a big obstacle to your or my glorifying the Lord. We want to be somebody. We want to be admired by people. Virtually everyone in this room has had that struggle in your life. You want to be liked by people. Most popular, whatever. Well, let's think a little more Along these lines, Psalm 115, 1. This is what the psalmist writes. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory. Because of your loving kindness and because of your truth. This is the heart of a person who wants to glorify the Lord. That you want to honor the Lord. Last week something happened that has never happened before in sports history. Four men were elected to the Hall of Fame in baseball but only one of them in that class got unanimous affirmation. 425 ballots cast by baseball writers, 425 ballots saying, yes, Mario Rivera, he should be in the Hall of Fame. That had never happened before. In all the many decades of the Hall of Fame's existence, it had never happened before. This was a man who set the record for the most closes, and that means nothing to most of you. But let me just simply say, as a baseball fiend, that this is the hardest job anybody on the baseball baseball field is given. You come in at the end of the game, warming up in the bullpen, you come in, and you face the opposition in the last inning. If you hold them to no score, You're going to win, and your team is going to go on to victory. Mario Rivera closed over 600 games in his career. If you do the math, that's the equivalent roughly of four years if he pitched every game for four years. He did it over a 19-year career. But this man, Mariano Rivera, who also holds a record for the most saves, closes in Postseason history, 42. The next closest, Brad Lidge of the Houston Astros, had 18. That was a lot, but it pales in comparison. This man, when he was interviewed about the success he had, he began a poor fisherman's son on the beaches of Panama. And he and his friends would play baseball, if you want to call it that. And they had no money so they crafted gloves out of empty milk cartons. They got a bat by cutting off a palm tree frond. They got a ball by taking their father's cast-off 
netting that was no longer good for trapping fish, and they wadded up as tightly as they could, then they took some tape, taped it around. That's the way they learned to play baseball. Amazing. He was a shortstop. His arm was hurt before he became pro, and he was a person who ended up thinking about going to shortstop, which he had played previously, but he got well. And when he came off the disabled list, he began to throw again. And his fastball had increased by seven to nine miles an hour. Now, it was 88 miles per hour to begin with. Have you ever stood up against someone through an 88-mile projectile towards you 60 feet away from you and tried to hit it? No. I'd be afraid it would hit me. You probably would too. Well, he developed a pitch too. It's called the cutter. It was a pitch he never tried to develop. It just sort of happened. And when he was interviewed as to how he developed that pitch, do you know what he called it? He said, it's God's pitch, is what he said. Here was a man. Do you see a man skilled at closing baseball games from the mound? Do you see a man skilled? Why has he been given that skill? Why has he been able to develop it? Because he understood that he was here primarily. I'm talking about Mariano Rivera here. He did it because he knew he was given that talent and the opportunity accompanied with it so that he could do God's work on a pitching mound. That's right. If you have any kind of honorable profession that doesn't call you to do something that's against the will of God, by all means, know whom you serve in that position. Whose name is at stake? It's the Lord. It's the glory of God that's at stake. Read about him, if you will. There's lots of good literature on Mariano. Going back to Isaiah 43, verse 25, God says, I, even I, am the one who blots out your transgressions for my sake. When we typically think of our sins being wiped away, I'm thinking about me more often than not. Are you? But it's for his sake. What does the Lord have at stake in redeeming you? What does he have at stake? His glory. That's what he has at stake. Do you think of yourself as such a person? In your home, at your workplace, in your community, at school, the Lord has saved you. Certainly thank Him for that. But He saved you for a greater purpose to bring glory and honor to the Lord. He wants that for you. And we have to depend on Him, deny ourselves as we abide in Christ and trust Christ to live His life through us. The last thing, Matthew 5.16, Jesus says, Let your light shine in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In such a way. That's the big idea. In such a way. What way might that be? Independence upon the Lord and not upon yourself. Not out to make a name for Mike Woods, but make a name for the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. Help us to be men and women who are intent upon knowing You and therefore being filled with Christ, being men and women who want to glorify You. Teach us. God, God, please make this church a God-glorifying church. We know in order for that to happen, we individually have to yield ourselves for that kind of outcome. Please use us individually and collectively. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.